0: Today's reading comes from Exodus fifteen twenty-two through 27. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Merah, they could not drink the water of Merah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Merah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. This is the word Lord. You may be seated.
1: All right, thank you, Carrie. That is an excellent job by a USC graduate, just uh, mentioning that, so it's not bad. So we continue in uh, the book of Exodus. Um, and we, we are now, well, with the exception of next week, we're gonna start covering even more um, uh, ground uh, as we accelerate our way through the rest of this. Um, let me pray and then just a quick update and then we're going to get into uh, what this passage is which is going to be the end of 15 and then all of 16 and 17. Uh, Lord God again we are thankful for who you are uh, that you've provided this place for us to be here today. Uh, We know your spirit is with us right now. It's our prayer that we would welcome your spirit. And that we would ask for the transforming power of your spirit to be with us today. Uh, The words that I have aren't going to transform anything. But your word and your power can do that. We ask that you would take the word of God, your word, apply it to your people so that you would be exalted and Jesus would be known. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So just a, a quick little update um, before we get in. Um, with uh, Cody's departure, uh, we've been kind of, we've been very slowly, um, not hastily, just talking about what we're gonna do next and, and uh, thinking and praying. And, and uh, one of the things that we've decided to do is we're gonna take this as an opportunity to sort of rearrange um, some of the staff. And we think that will be helpful. And so, actually, we're, we're in the process. This is just in case you are wondering, but you don't want to ask me the question. Um, but w- what, we're, what we're planning on doing is we're going to be hiring an, a, an associate pastor, so a third pastor, and we're also going to be hiring somebody for worship. So, just to let you know, we haven't really even started the process yet, but that's probably how we're going to uh, proceed forward. And if you're interested in, in any details about that, um, if, if that's something that you'd like to know more about, you can contact Steve uh, Wheeler or Jim Moreland or me. Just give us a chance to get back to you in a, in a fairly untimely manner because it's kind of a busy time right now. So just, just a little update for you there. So getting into Exodus. Last week, we had this song of Moses. And, and Josh came and unpacked it for us, and it was really powerful. And I want us to just, as we launch into the rest of Exodus, I want us to consider again the words of that, that song, which appears in the first 21 verses of chapter 15. Uh, throughout this series, we have talked about God's retributive justice and his redemptive justice. Uh, the fact that in some cases, justice requires requires retribution. Uh, and in fact, it requires retribution and so, th- so that there might be Uh, redemption in some way. And Moses' song is specifically, read those words, it's specifically about the retributive justice of God. They're celebrating, the Israelites are celebrating the retributive justice of God. Um, But also we need to notice how the retributive justice on the Egyptians is in fact a part of God's redemptive justice for Israel. They're not redeemed without this retribution. That's just the way it works. And sometimes we really struggle with that. It's very, very difficult. So they sing in response to this. They stop what they're doing and they sing. Now, now, l- listen, I-, I, think I, have, I think I have some really helpful things this morning out of this passage. But if you get nothing out of today other than this, you've done good, okay? Uh, Fifty times in Scripture, God calls His people to sing. Fifty times. Now think about that. There are a lot of people who think about church and think, Sermon, 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 sermon. And we are called to study His Word, and we're called to hear His Word, and we're called to teach His Word, and we're called to proclaim the Gospel. But that is also done through singing. We are called to sing, and we are called to sing songs of of joy, songs of exaltation, songs of praise, but we're also called to sing songs of lament, and songs of complaint, and even songs of retribution. There is even songs, there are even songs in Scripture about God's retributive justice. Understand, there is no redemptive justice without retributive justice. That's just the way it works. If there weren't sin in the world, we wouldn't need retributive justice. But there is sin in the world, so we need that. Uh, G.K. Testerton once wrote this, and I may have to explain the quote a little bit, but I love it. I love, I love what he's trying to paint here for us. In every romance, there must be three characters. There must be the princess, who is a thing to be loved. There must be the dragon, who is a thing to be fought, and there must be St. George, who is a thing that both loves and fights. Now, if you understand what Chesterton is doing here, St. George is God. He's saying that God does love. He is a God of love, but he's also a God who fights. He's also a God of justice. He is also a God who is going to take care of business. And Exodus is about both sides of that justice coin, retributive and uh, redemptive redemptive justice. So this song leads us into these next few chapters, and we've, I think, properly titled it The Provision. So there's kind of four sections uh, that we'll look at. The, The first section is what was read by Kerry, the bitter water, that they encounter bitter water after three days with nothing to drink. And remember, they have livestock with them. And then we find out that they don't have any food either. And that could be a problem as well. And, and then they don't have water. Again, the bitter water might as well have been no water. But then they actually encounter a place where they have absolutely no water. And then they encounter a place where they're being attacked. And so they need might. So God is providing water, food, water, and might for them. So what, we, what was just read? Verse 22 uh, Cary read that they entered a, a region called Shur. It's a region where they cross, uh, and they're a little bit north of Horeb. We've been talking a little bit about the mountain of God, Horeb. It's, it's Sinai. It has all of these different names. And they went to Merah, which is in the southern portion of Shur, nearer to Horeb. And the word Merah means bitter, so that comes into play. And three days They've gone without water. Now, even in the wake of the crossing of the Red Sea and the miraculous story of that, and the fact that they sang about it, that it's a historical reality, um, I would guess that after three days with no water, I would complain too, and so would you. Let's put ourselves in their position. Yes, that's worth complaining about. Have you ever been so thirsty and you have nothing to drink? It's worth complaining about. So I, I, I get it. And like I said, they have livestock, so the livestock's probably upset as well. But in verse 26, God says, I am the Lord, your healer, your healer. That's interesting language. In this case, God heals by simply making the bitter water sweet. That's how he heals. And really, it's a picture of how God has taken the bitter lives of his people in Egypt and he liberates them to a sweeter life now. So, so even in, in the challenges that I believe God is orchestrating for his people, encountering this bitter water, he's doing it as a way to remind them, to constantly remind them. How often have we talked about the importance of remembering in this book of Egypt? So he's reminding them here, here's, your life was bitter. I have now brought you out of that bitter life and have made it sweet. You, you fast forward a little bit to the story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. And Naomi, Ruth's mother in law, just had a miserable, miserable life. If you read the first part of Ruth, she had a challenging, tough life. Nothing went right for uh, Naomi. And finally, Naomi says, I am so depressed. depressed, I'm so despondent. I'm so frustrated. I'm going to rename myself what? Mara. Because I'm bitter. But in her renaming, I want you to hear this, in her renaming, knowing the story of the exodus, she's also saying, I know and expect that the promise of God will come true and my life will again be sweet. And was her life not sweet later on? You see these themes that just keep playing out through God's word. It's really, really beautiful. Of course, God's people don't always see it that way. And in fact, this is the beginning of the attitude that frankly holds them back for 40 years. It took them 40 years to finally enter the promised land. I mean, it was right there, just a few hundred miles away, but it took them 40 years to get there because their, um, their bad attitude, their lack of gratitude was, was holding them back. So another t-shirt I came up with that we'll never make for the church, but here it is. No gratitude, no progress. No gratitude. How, here you go. How often do you and I complain in the midst of incredible provision, protection, prosperity, and liberty? No gratitude. And, and we think that next little thing is going is to be the thing that gives us that gratitude. And then we go, ah, it wasn't quite right. How is our lack of gratitude holding us back? So... The water problem gets solved, but now at the beginning of chapter 16, you find in the first three verses that they encounter a food problem, and the people whine to Moses, and they say, they, here's what they say, even though we lived in captivity as slaves and our lives were hard, at least we had meat and bread to our fill. So now they're saying, okay, uh, forget all the oppression that we had to experience, at least we had something to eat. So now they're, they're complaining about that. And so the people, after they've witnessed everything that God is doing, now suggest that they would be better off if they went back into slavery. That's what they're doing. They're saying, ah, we'd be better off uh, as oppressed slaves. And this is not the last time that they make this suggestion. They make it repeatedly. How often do you and I romanticize, and I know we do, how often do we romanticize a place that when we were there, we were pretty desperate to leave? I I see that all the time. Uh, People who leave Phoenix because it sucks here. And they they go to the promised land of of Montana or Charlotte or Austin or whatever it is. And two years later, they're going, "Eh, it's not that great here either. In fact, I remember how good it was in Phoenix. We had a great time in Phoenix. Did you forget how miserable you were here? We're just miserable where we are. That's our problem. Our problem is contentment. Everybody's unhappy where they are because they're sh- we're, sh- we're all sure there's something that- Right now, you're thinking there's a better sermon in a different Redemption Church right now. <laughs> it's a lack of contentment. Just be content with what I got, okay? <laughs> it's, it's a problem. And, and, and it's funny because we're also the same way with our sin, if you think about it. God, through Christ, liberates us from our sin, and, and then we, we go back to it, and beca- we, we enslave ourselves to our sin. So this grumbling takes us to the famous passage of the manna. So chapter 16, verses 4 and 5. Then the Lord said to Moses, because they need some food, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. There's a little preview to the Sabbath there. So he says, bread from heaven. That it is bread from heaven. God says, bread from heaven. It's a reminder that God is not only sovereign over food, but he's sovereign over everything. That he is in charge. And he says, that I may test them. Are my people going to walk in my instruction? Will they respond to God's goodness? That's the question that comes up here. And and, and I want you to hear this. This is so important. This is not prove your worthiness, people, so that I might continue to be your God. He's saying, I am your God. I have saved you. And I have provided for you and I have protected you. I've done the miraculous for you. So the question really now is on you. Will you be my people? I have initiated, you are responding here. Will you respond to all of this? this? This is, in fact, in a way, a test. And it's the same question we have to ask ourselves about our life in Christ as well. Jesus did not save us. If you're a Christian today, Jesus did not save you after you had cleaned yourself up and become worthy of his salvation. He met you where you are, but now he's beginning that process of transforming you and bringing you to where he wants you to be and that's going to culminate in his kingdom when it comes so how are we going to respond how are we going to live our lives are in a sense tom used to say this all the time our lives are kind of a a laboratory for christian faith how are we doing with it And and I think one of the reasons he says that is because of what James says in his New Testament letter in chapter one, when he says, consider it all joy, beloved, when you encounter trials of various kinds. Notice it's not if you encounter trials, it's when you encounter trials of various kinds. And then he says, here's why you should consider it joy, because the testing of your faith. Our faith is constantly tested. My faith, your faith, it's constantly tested It's a given in Scripture that our faith is going to be tested, but it's going to produce something because the testing of your faith, James says, will produce, and the Greek word is hupomene, and it's variously translated as perseverance, steadfastness, endurance, and patience. All things that we need and want to be known for, but they're not spiritual gifts. They're things that we work at through the testing of our faith. So it's a perfectly legitimate question and expectation that God's pla- God places on his people. It's, it's that obedience word that we don't like. Obey, obedience. Mm, I thought this was a grace-based church. We are, but our obedience is in response to his, his grace. So here's the test for them. They're only supposed to collect the manna for the day. By the way, what does manna mean? Anybody know? What is it? Literally, they called, it. we'll see, they're going to call it manna. But they, they called it manna because they didn't know what it is. So they just called it, what is it? So in English, that's what they'd be doing. We're going out to gather, what is it? Okay, that's what they're doing. So he says, only collect for the day. Don't hoard. Just collect for that one day. Okay, that, that one prayer where 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 you say god don't give me too much provision that i forget about you or too little provision and i have to go and steal and dishonor your name give me just enough for the day we hate living like that though don't we don't we hate that i need some for tomorrow and you'll see god's people also do the same thing he says collect for a day don't hoard And in order that you will keep the Sabbath... Now, we haven't even had the Sabbath properly introduced in the Ten Commandments. That's coming in two weeks. But he says, in order for you to keep the Sabbath on the sixth day, I'll give you twice as much so that you'll have food on the Sabbath. But any other time you try to keep some for later, because they're going to see, I can gather twice as much on the sixth day, and it stays good until the seventh day, and I can eat it on the seventh day. Why don't I do that on the first day and the second day? He says, if you do that on the first day, second day, third day, and so on... I'm going to spoil it. So he said, go ahead and keep some over from that, on that first day or second day or whatever. Go ahead, and if you like maggots, maggots you shall have, because that's exactly what will happen to the extra on any other day other than that last day. So verses 9 through 16. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke, the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Again, I added that editorial comment. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. That's the manna. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, There was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, manna. They said, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. So here he is providing. But then we find out in verses 16 through 21 that many of the people simply could not resist the hoarding. They couldn't resist. They had to give it a try. And when they did, it was filled with maggots and worms and stankiness." So think about this. This is also, in a sense, a picture of our life in the gospel with Jesus. We, you and I, we have this insatiable belief, and we don't say this out loud because we know it's foolish, but we, 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 we have this intrapersonal conversation with ourselves we can get away with disobeying and God is still going to favor us and give us blessing. We can disobey. We can do all of these things and, and, and we can do things that aren't godly that He doesn't call us to do and He's still going to bless us. But then we get, we get mad when we go our own way and God somehow doesn't make our life all sunshine and hugs for us. And we blame Him. Just like the Israelites. And so... The people miraculously delivered from the oppression, miraculously delivered from the plagues, the Passover, and and, and now they're going through the parting of of the sea. And now they're in the wilderness and being fed handsomely. They're struggling to be God's people. Just think about all these events. And they've got everything they need. They're struggling to be God's people. Here you go. Success, achievement, and victory often that's the last place that you and I think about God. What, what, do, we need, what do we need God for there? It's all good. We're, we're fine. And so what happens is often our most vulnerable times in our walk with Christ are when things are good. It's that, it's that very challenging fact of life that when things are bad, when we're in trial and tribulation and suffering and challenges, we want it to be over with. But in fact, when it's over with, that's when our faith becomes weakest. That's the challenge with this stuff. Interesting, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul uses this generous provision of the food for the Israelites as a reminder to Christians of our obligation to be generous to others. And and that's not just money, not just generous with money, but generous with our time, our energy, our effort, our availability, our forgiveness, our mercy, and our honor. Of course, the wilderness Jews didn't quite get it. The question is, will we? And in their case, look what happens, verses 22 through 30. On the sixth day, they gather twice as much bread, two omers each. An omer, they're only supposed to uh, collect one omer, and that's about two quarts, okay? Uh, they gathered two omers each, and when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning." So they laid it aside till the morning, as Moses commanded them. And it did not stink, and there were no worms in it, because they had tried that with the other days, and that's what had happened. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord, and you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none, just not listening. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, the sixth day, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain, each of you, in his place. Let no one go out of this place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. It's like a comedy, a tragic comedy. So what this whole manna system shows us and them is simply the sovereignty of God. We need to see that it's not just about providing bread. It's about the sovereignty of God. The authority of God. The greatness of God. And as chapter 16 ends, it appears that the people finally get it. And they settle in and enjoy the manna for 40 years. And they finally do observe the Sabbath. And again, a question for us. Are we observing the Sabbath? Do we have a Sabbath day? Do we have a day of rest? God God created us so that we would have a day of rest, but also a day to be reminded of of who he is. It's very important. And again, we're going to talk more about that in, in two weeks. But also, you know how I love context. I also want you to think about this. This might have been a really difficult and challenging principle for the people of Israel to understand, a day of rest. They had been oppressed slaves for hundreds of years. When did they ever have a day off prior to this? I'm sure they had no idea what to do with themselves. And and there was nothing to do out in the wilderness either. God is commanding them to rest, because that's really about all that you can do. This is really new to them. But though this chapter is over and it ends on a good note, there's more quarreling accusation and animus ahead. Look at chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? You're trying to kill us, Moses. So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and the water shall come out of it and the people will drink. That's very significant. I'll get to that in a second. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Not. They move on to another place with no water and they begin to complain and Moses also complains. I get that. He's under a lot of pressure as well. He's getting it from both God and the people. And what does God do? He says, go and get the staff. Okay. The significance of the staff is that when you are placed on trial in their context, in their cultural context, when you are placed on trial, the prosecutor has a staff that's how the, the prosecutor is signified, has a staff. And what did God say? He says, I will stand before you. Can, do you see what's happening here? God is saying, Okay, judge me. Go ahead. I'm going to stand before you. I'll be judged. You're the ones who deserve the judgment, y'all. But I will stand before you and be judged. But here's my bona fides, here's, here's my proof. Strike that rock and water is going to come out. That's his evidence of who he is. It's pretty amazing. So the people, again, show their hardness of heart, their stiff-neckedness. They're, they're a lot like Pharaoh, to be honest with you. But again, God provides. And it's on Horeb, the mountain of God. And notice how Moses is led to respond with strength in a unified front. Did you notice that too? Sometimes, even when faithfully serving others, that, that response with strength in a unified front is necessary. Now, the Amalekites enter the scene, and we get to see God's might in the midst of this. So, 8 through 13. Then Amalek, it's his name, the Amalekites, came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, here we have Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek. The Israelites overwhelmed the Amalekites and his people with the sword. So think about this. This is the first time that the Israelites had to fight for their salvation. That's an interesting little detail. And this is the first battle in a long, centuries-long series of battles with Amalek, the people of Amalek, the Amalekites. This is 1445 B.C. I'm going to take you through this history in a few minutes. The Amalekites were just northeast of where the Israelites were at that moment. But they were in the path of where the Israelites were headed. So why why were the Amalekites predisposed to attack them? And there's two possibilities. Number one, you see 2 million-plus people headed your way you might feel a little threatened. And you might decide to attack first and ask questions later. That's the first possible explanation. So you can understand that. Uh, But second of all, sort of a little inside baseball, Amalek was a descendant of Esau, Jacob's brother. Esau was the one that did not get the blessing. Jacob, Israel, the Israelites, was the one who got the blessing. So this was like some descendant sibling rivalry going on here. And, and if you don't think that's possible, you, you don't understand, again, the historical context. People held this stuff really close to their hearts. They held grudges literally for centuries. And, and they were quick to, to act on those grudges. So it's a little bit of a Hatfields, McCoys, kind of a, a Givens, Crowders kind of a thing. This is what's, what's going on here. And the story of Moses' arms, meaning, this is long puzzled scholars as to the exact meaning. Some say it's just simply symbolic of prayer, beseeching God for his victory. Others say this, and I, and I think this is the camp I fall into. Other, others say that this is a, a symbol of God's banner over his people. If you read through the Old Testament, there are many banners in the Old Testament over God's people, which signify protection and provision And sovereignty, which is exactly what we're talking about in these these chapters here. And and we have have banners in the New Testament and banners in our church even. When you raise your hands when you're singing. When you come up for communion, that's a banner of God over you. When you pray, that's a banner. We, We have our banners as well. Look at the last three verses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So this is kind of important. I want to take you through this. It's the history of Amalek. So this Amalekite battle occurred in 1445 B.C. Then, fast forward to 1 Samuel and King Saul, the first king of Israel. And God goes to Saul through the prophet Samuel. Samuel was his elder, his prophet, his his mentor. And he says, I I need you to give Saul this message. He's the king. He's going to lead my forces into battle. God says, I remember what Amalek, the Amalekites, did to my people, opposing them as they were brought out from Egypt. So he's talking about this, this war that we just looked at. They are preparing to go, go to war again with my people. Saul, you are to utterly destroy them this time. Blot out their name. Wipe out everything. Do not even take for yourself the spoils of war, their treasures or their livestock. Nothing. All of it you must destroy. Don't keep a single thing. But Saul knows better than God, just like we do. We have a better plan. And Saul not only spared the livestock, but he also refused to kill the king of the Amalekites at that time, a guy named Agag. A-G-A-G. He refused to kill him. He just took him as a prisoner and then eventually let him go. And in one of the funniest parts, I think, of all of Scripture, uh, Samuel comes after the battle, and Saul sees him, and he runs up to Samuel and proudly pronounces the victory. And he says, I've done everything that the Lord has asked me to do. And Samuel says, then what is this bleeding of the sheep that I hear in my ears, and what is this lowing of the oxen that I am hearing? I hear all their livestock. You didn't do everything that the Lord asked. And the Lord was dismayed at this result. And Agog is, is let go. The king, he's let go. So the line of Amalek survives. The Amalekites survived. Fast forward to the story of Esther. She's in Persia. The year is 475 B.C. So this is, this is now another five or 600 years later. Esther may be my favorite Old Testament story, by the way. So Esther, who is a Jew, becomes queen of Persia. She she, um, wins this competition against all the other women in all of Persia. And uh, the king was Xerxes, a guy named Xerxes. I I refer to him as Xerxes the Jerxes. At any rate, Xerxes the Jerxes, he picks Esther to be his, his new wife, a Jew. And she marries Xerxes. And the king, at that time, then promotes a guy named Haman to a position of power in his court. Haman, drunk on his new position and, and power, the number two in all of the land, he makes an edict and he says, I want everybody in the land, when I walk by, you must bow down to me. No matter who you are, no matter what you're doing, when I walk by, you need to bow down to me. Well, there's a guy named Mordecai. He's Esther's uncle and he's Jewish and he works at the, at the gates of the, of the palace And so Haman's walking by all the time and Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman. Why? Because Mordecai is a Jew and he refuses to bow down to anybody except Yahweh because that's part of the Ten Commandments. Well, Haman is livid. Livid. But get this. He's primarily livid. Why? Here you go. Haman is a descendant of Agag. And Mordecai is a descendant of who? Saul! (laughs) This sibling rivalry is still going on. It's amazing. So what? Some of you are like, okay, cool. What now? Here you go! It's very simple. What you and I do today, even if we think it means nothing, it means something to God. And you never know what it's gonna mean to you in the future. when God calls us to something, I'm telling you, we need to think long and hard before we've refuse to do it. Long and hard. And if we do refuse, we shouldn't be surprised by the negative results. And those results may come even decades later and visit our kids or our grandkids. So as we finish, I want to go back to chapter fifteen, verse twenty-seven. And other verses in 16 as well. And this notion of rest. This idea of being able to rest in who God is for us. Okay? Uh, This takes me into Matthew chapter 11. Pretty famous little thing that Jesus says. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are, Are you weighed down with sin? Yes. Are you weighed down with laws and rules and edicts and policies and government? Yes. Are you weighed down with work, too much work and not enough time? Yes. Are we weighed down? Yes. Jesus says, all of those things come and I'm going to give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. He's saying, I've paid the price. I've done all the work. True rest resides in me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let me ask you something. Are you saved but you have no rest? Do you know Jesus but you have absolutely no rest? Have you been led out of your captivity like the Israelites? You've been delivered from what has enslaved you, your sin but yet you find no rest for your soul because you've never entered the promised land, so to speak. Notice that they're in the wilderness. They haven't entered the promised land. The call of Jesus is always to come. It's so interesting how much you and I love the rescue. We love the deliverance. We love the conversion. But then the challenges of life, when they come, like the Israelites faced, they get at us and they get us down. We need to remember that God provides and protects. Here you go. God provides and protects. And we struggle with that because we know that it's true cognitively. But in our life, we're wondering which is which and when is which happening. Sometimes God is protecting us and it feels like he's not providing for us and so we're mad at him. Sometimes God is actually providing for us and we think he's not protecting us and we're mad at him. But he understands our needs, and he understands the perfect balance, even in the challenges of life, the suffering of life, those valleys of life. We're just not quite aware of what he's doing. But we can rest in the fact that he's God, and he's sovereign, and his yoke is light and easy, because he's already paid the price. Jackie and I started watching this show um, a couple weeks ago, and... I know it's a television show, but believe me, stories can communicate truth like very few other things can. And we're watching, and uh, it's about a broken down attorney who becomes an alcoholic and he's, he's, he's living in a uh, horrible place and he gets a few cases thrown his way just to barely survive. He used to be this great attorney and now he's an awful, awful his life is in shambles. And somebody throws him a case. And he ends up winning the case. And his cut of the payoff is about $20 million. Okay, That's the end of season one. Season two starts. This is what we're watching earlier this week. Season two starts. He's got all this money. He's drinking more heavily. He's more lonely than he's ever been. All of his relationships are worse rather than better. And he's more miserable than before he won the case. And of course, the way the story goes, the only thing that might bring him fulfillment and joy and satisfaction is if he goes and finds another case and wins that case. Do you see the futility of this? And I was sitting there, I was sitting there. I did not come to Christ until I was 27 years old. And so I will tell you, I lived for 27 years looking for that next thing, pursuing that next thing that was gonna bring me that fulfillment, that joy that rest, and I kept looking and looking and looking and looking, and every time I thought I'd found it, I would celebrate, and then three weeks later, I'm miserable, and I'm looking, and I'm looking, and I'm looking, I had no rest. It's not that the things of this world are bad, but they don't provide rest for us the way only God, through His Son, Jesus Christ, can, and as I'm sitting there watching this show, it just dawned on me. I have rest, and I have had rest for the last 32 years. I have a joy, I have a hope. I'm 60 years old, and I'm not out looking for that next thing because I already know what the next thing is. It's Jesus. That is an unbelievable truth that gives us purpose and meaning and rest, and it makes me not fear death. That's a beautiful thing. Come, all of us who are weary and weighed down, and this is where we're going to find rest. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth, and we're just thankful that this magnificent story of the Exodus has been recorded for us so that we might learn from you. And so, God, it is our prayer that as we go from um, this building, after we uh, sing and we take communion, that we would know that we have rest, that we have hope, that we know what's next. God, that is a great and wonderful thing to celebrate. So let us do that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.